Well, um, let's have a look at each other. If you're not on gallery view, just go on gallery view. If you're on Zoom, YouTube, of course, you can't do this. But here we are, Town Church. Uh, we're meeting together, as we have done for many weeks now. And indeed, Helen's already prayed that God's word, whether online, whether in person, whether it's collective, whether it's one-to-one, -one, this is what we pray, that God's word is God's breathed. And when we hear it, God's spirit takes it, shoots it into our hearts and does what he will with it. Will we accept his word? Will we accept his challenge? Will we accept uh, the, the change will we accept the truth behind it that's the challenge for us tonight as it is every time we come face to face with God's words so let's pray uh, and uh, I'm just going to look at you the lovely people of town church as I pray and pray that these words from Esther 4 uh, would change us and would convict us do do whatever God uh, would have them do. So Father God, we thank you for each other. Thank you that we're church. Thank you that it's your church, your body of believers, um, all from different walks of life, randomly, humanly speaking, brought together. Uh, but we know because we've read some of Esther that you've got a plan, you've got a purpose. And here we are, your people. We are in your place that you want us to be. And so we pray now that as we come to your word, you do what you will with your word in our hearts. Please give us hearts to accept it. If that's a big challenge, please would we accept that. If it's a comfort, may we grasp it with arms wide open. Uh, if it's a rebuke, Father, speak to us if you need to. But would your word do its work in our hearts tonight? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This story, chapter four, it's about change. It's all about change. If you're a Christian and you can remember what life was like when you weren't a Christian. Now, even if you grew up in a Christian home and you kind of believed there was a time where it clicked and it all made sense and the penny dropped and you bowed the knee to the great Father God and you said, I, I need to be changed. I'm following the ways of the world or, or I'm not sacrificially giving everything to you. I'm, I'm not living for you. Change me. Please change me. I accept that the Lord Jesus has forgiven my sins. And, and then afterwards you see the change that's happened, perhaps slowly, perhaps gradual. And then as a Christian growing older, you see small little pockets of change along the way. And sometimes you wish that that change would go faster and you change more and you change more rapidly. But the Christian journey is all about change, that God is continuing to conform us more like the Lord Jesus. It's about change. If you're not a Christian, then let me tell you tonight that that's what the Christian life is all about, change. And it's not change that I or you can make. It's a change that is done outside of us through the Lord Jesus. And I trust in what the Lord Jesus has done. And that changes me. Changes my standing before God. And then it changes my ability to live in the world that I'm placed in. Because God puts his spirit within me and says, now you're able to live for me. Change, change, change. The Christian life 
is all about change. Chapter four of Esther is change. We see change. And coming to the Old Testament and a book like Esther, I hope you've enjoyed the journey so far. But there are two key questions. There are more, but there are two key questions that we've got to continue to ask ourselves when coming to an Old Testament book. Because we believe that God's word is God inspired and we believe that every author has a purpose. So the author of Esther writes with a purpose, a purpose for us to get. They want us to understand something critical about God and about his salvation plan. So here are two key questions that I think will help us on our way this evening. And we've asked these questions before, but here's the first one. What does this passage teach us about God? When we come to the Old Testament especially, but every passage of the Bible, here's my first question. What can I understand more about God from this passage? About his character, about the way that he works, about the way that he loves and cares, about his justice, the kind of prayer that Helen's already prayed. And as we've already said in Esther, this is a tricky question to answer because God is not explicitly mentioned within this book. He's not mentioned at all. The word God does not appear. The only book in the Bible with his word, with his name, the name of God not appearing anywhere. But we've already seen that he is working. In fact, the whole theme series is called God Behind the Scenes. We know he's working. Key question number one, what does this passage teach us about God? Key question number two, what does this passage show us about what God will do through his son, Jesus? Every story in the Old Testament, every chapter in the Old Testament, it's a critical question for me to come into a passage in the Bible and say, what does this passage show me about what God will do through his son, Jesus. Sometimes it's really easy to spot. Other times it's almost impossible and Jesus isn't there. And that's, that's no problem because the answer is it's, he's not there and not there for a purpose, but he will appear somewhere else uh, within the book. But in a passage like Esther 4, there's some digging that we need to do to try and get to the answer of that question. What does this passage show us about what God will do through his son, Jesus? Here's our very best Bible, children's Bible. And it's very best, why? Because every story whispers his name. Whose name? Not God's name, Jesus' name. Every story in the Old Testament whispers the name of Jesus, shows us something that will take place in God's son Jesus, is a foreshadow of what's going to come. And this is really crucial for me to understand. And it's hard for me, I think, when I come to Esther, not to fall into a couple of traps. So let me tell you what these couple of traps are. And, and Simon's already done this with us and done a good job of it too. Here's the first trap. I want to know who the hero is, and I want to identify with that hero very quickly. That's the first trap that we fall into. And do you know what? When I hold this um, children's Bible book up, I could hold a hundred more up and say, that's really what they try and teach. Who's the hero in the Bible? Who's the hero in this book? Oh, it's Daniel. It's Joseph. It's David. Be more like him. 
And that's why this is the best one. By the way, little hint for you parents, if you're looking for Bibles for children, this is the best Bible book that I've seen. Because here's the danger. I look into Esther and I'm scratching my head saying, who's the hero? Who's the goodie and who's the baddie? I think I know who the baddie is, but I'm not quite sure who the goodie is. I want to know who the hero is and I want to identify myself with them quite quickly. That happens in our family all the time. Frozen 2 has just come out. Some of you will have seen it. Some of you won't have a clue what I'm on about. Oh, to be you. <laughs> but anyway, Frozen 2, um, off we go. Do you know what always happens whenever we watch Frozen? There's a voice, usually in the backseat of the car. I'm Elsa. A voice very quickly. I'm Anna. Another voice. I'm Olaf. All right, okay. Kerry's usually Anna and um, Anna, uh, Anna uh, sorry, Anna and um, Elsa's mum. That's her role. On good days, I get Kristoff, usually Sven. So all the good characters are taken up because very quickly, we want to identify ourselves with the heroes. We want to be them. And in every story from my children, I'm him. I'm her, I'm him. It's natural within us. And when I come to Esther 4, I'm like, whoa, who do I want to be like? Who do I want to be like in this story? It's a trap for us to fall into. And here's the second trap. Alongside with me trying to work out who I want to be like, I'm trying to work out the, the moral theme throughout. And I seek then to learn lessons from it. This isn't altogether a bad thing, but it's not the purpose of Esther. The author of Esther is not writing this for me to dig deep and work out, mm, was, was Mordecai, was he moral in that decision? King Xerxes, whoa, was he right, was he wrong? And we've done, a brilliant, um, we, we've done a brilliant study on his character, but it's not the reason why the author writes Esther. It's not. Because at the beginning of chapter four, here's the big story going on. We are left with the question of how is God going to save his people in this predicament? Because we know King Xerxes, he's rich and he's powerful. Yet we've learned that he's needy, he's insecure. Remember he held a party, 180 days of partying so that he could show off his wealth as he reigned over 127 provinces. Do you remember the author's detail? He talked about the couches that they sat on, gold and silver, mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, other costly stones. Here's a picture. Drinking abundant wine from goblets of gold. Here's the king. He's showing off all of his wealth. Do you remember the story? He's discarded his queen because she wouldn't, be displayed in front of his guests. And then they held a beauty contest to find his next queen. Esther was chosen, a Jew, but kept her identity under wraps. We meet her guardian and uncle, Mordecai, and he hears the plot to kill the king. So he tells Esther, who relays the message, to the king, we see God at work behind the scenes. Mordecai just so happens uh, to have heard the guards speaking about the plot to kill the king. And then yet, do you remember last week, the king raises up Haman 
And, and, and Sai said, hey, in that very unfair moment, do you remember that? It's just not fair. It's how Sai started his talk last week. The king raises up Hanan, Haman, who is upset with Mordecai because he won't bow down. So what happens? Haman the Agagite, and we heard something about that last week. He doesn't just want to kill Mordecai, but he wants to wipe out all the Jews. All of God's people from the 127 provinces, which is the known world of that time, the prospect of the Holocaust awaits. So we come to chapter four. This isn't about me trying to identify myself with the key characters in the story. This is about me trying to understand the enormity of what is about to happen. The prospect of the Holocaust awaits as the Jews are about to be wiped out. Do you remember the dice has been thrown? The dice was thrown in the first month and the execution date for the Jews lands in the 12th month. God behind every roll of dice. That's 12 months, 12 months before the Jews are to be wiped out. So we come to chapter four and the big question is, how is God going to save his people from utter annihilation from the holocaust of all holocausts is such a horrible word to use but this is the prospect we're going to look at two phrases later on we'll, we'll look at these within the verses but let's pick up the story see right at the beginning of chapter four mordecai is the entrance of the king's palace and he's mortified He's ripped his clothes to shreds. He's put on sackcloth. He's put ashes on his head. There's a, a horrible, lifeless grayness about his complexion. It's almost as if he were dead. Why? Because God's people are about to be wiped off the face of the planet. And not only Mordecai is in this state, but we see in verse 3. Verse 3 reads this, In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. You see that every Jew is weeping. Every Jew is mourning. Every Jew is in a state of utter despair. They're about to be killed. They've got months to live. They're about to be killed, and the whole people is about to be wiped out. Every Jew is weeping, except, Esther. Esther's in great distress. But do you see what Esther's in great distress about? Did you pick that up? She's not in great distress about the passing of the new law, which will very soon execute all her people. She's in distress because the one who was as close as a father, as close as a daddy to her, is in great distress. So she sends some of her servants down to him at the king's gate with new clothes. Perhaps a nice Versace jacket would help Mordecai. Perhaps some smart jeans would help him. She sends new clothes so that he would put them on, so that that would cheer himself up. He would not put them on. So Esther sends Hathak. We're introduced to Hathak. Here's Hathak, one of her servants. 
What's the matter with Mordecai? Go and find out what the matter is. Mordecai tells Hathak everything, all about Haman's plans. And he most crucially, and, and he talks about the crucial next step that Esther must make. Verse 8, he told him, this is Mordecai telling Hathak, he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. And so Hathak returns from Mordecai to Queen Esther. And look at Queen Esther's response. Did you see that? No way. There's no chance. There's absolutely no way that I am going to see the king. Mordecai, you're joking. You're kidding. Aren't you kidding? Mordecai, you know this. If I go unsummoned to the king, there's one law. It's the king's number one law. It shows his power. It shows that he's in charge. If someone enters his presence without being summoned, the axe comes out dead. Unless they're approved by the king, but it's very rare that anyone would ever dare risk it. No one goes into the king's presence without invitation. Death awaits. And you see, especially for Esther, especially for Esther, for you've heard read, she had not been summoned to the king for 30 days. She's out of favour. She's the king's queen, and yet she's not seen him for 30 days. You think the king has been sleeping alone? No, he's King Xerxes. He's got an incredibly big harem would choose any girl that he wanted to sleep with that night. Esther has not been summoned for 30 days. She is out of favour. And so Hathak, back you go. He tells Mordecai, goes back straight away. And here's Mordecai's answer to Queen Esther. Verse 13, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this, for such a time as this. Do you see what Mordecai does? Mordecai preaches the gospel of God. Do you see that? Mordecai actually preaches the gospel of God. Esther, you are under judgment. Who will deliver you? God will keep his promises. Do you know what? God will deliver. God is a promise-keeping God. Look, relief and deliverance will come. They will come. They might come from from another source. Here is a God who will keep his promises, even when you're under judgment. But, Esther, but, but, what if you're a part of the solution? Esther, what if God has placed you as Queen of Susa on behalf of the Jews? What if this is your time for such a time as this to be part of the deliverance? And in a moment, as Esther sits in her royal attire, 
pondering these words. And in a moment, as the rescue of God's people lies in the balance, the salvation of the world is in this story dependent on Esther's next move. You see that? See the enormity of the story? A girl who has risen to the top without any effort. A Jewish girl whose faith in God has been ambivalent. We've not really heard about it. Distant from the story. Perhaps a a weak believer in the God of Israel. We don't know, but certainly with a checkered history. A girl that has two names, Hadassah and Esther, probably struggling with her identity. Do you see the salvation of the world is dependent on Esther's next move? What will she do? I think we're led to believe that the odds are in favour of her compromising. She's already sent a message to Mordecai saying, no chance, I'm not coming to the king. In fact, the bookies cry out 25 to 1 that Esther doesn't conform to the world that she knows. 25 to 1 that she doesn't do that. Because the odds are stacked against her doing what Mordecai has asked her to do. What about us in this story for a moment? Just stop. I heard someone in a recent Zoom conversation as we were talking a little little bit, they used this phrase for such a time as this. They'd been put into a position uh, of ministry and they said, well, I think it's God raising me up for such a time as this, like Esther. Let's be clear here. When we're in danger of seeking the hero and then identifying the hero as Esther, Do you see, for such a time as this in Esther's day, it it was in the context of of global annihilation of God's people. It it was in the context of cosmic failure of of God's plan. Therefore, the the prospect of salvation being obliterated. I I can't quite use this statement for such a time as this on such a grand scale as is being used in Esther. I can't, nor can you. I can't just say Esther said this, therefore I can when I'm called to do something or when I'm in a a position that I think God's called me to. I can't use this statement like that. But on a small and very yet very significant scale, we have those moments, don't we? That God puts us in specific times and specific places for a specific moment for such a time as this to choose to identify with the world or choose to be a follower of Jesus think now the day-to-day battles behind the closed door for such a time as this what we watch how we speak what we do with our money how we treat the children for such a time as this he's called me to be in this position Will I compromise and go the way of the world? Or will I follow the Lord Jesus? In the public square, will I stand up for Jesus? 
Will I move on from the job that compromises my faith beliefs? Will I show grace and mercy to a colleague who's wronged me? How we comment on social media. If we remain silent over crucial issues that the church should be speaking about. For such a time as this. Will you speak of the love and grace and kindness of Jesus? We talk about it quite often. Reaching the people of Bista and beyond. Speak up for your faith in the Lord Jesus. Because God has placed you, he's placed me, where he has for such a time as this, to act, to speak, to stand up for truth, for such a time as this. Of course we can't use that statement on such a great scale as is used in Esther. No, we can't. But we do believe that he's called us to be in the places that he's called us to be in, so that we can offer the words of life, the salvation to others to be different from the world that we find ourselves in. And so Esther tells Hathak, go back to Mordecai. Fair play to Hathak. He's gone running up from the palace to the king's gate. He has done bleep test, back, forward, back, forward. Here's Hathak on his next mission. Go to Mordecai and tell him this. Verse 16, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Something changes in Esther. Something has happened. Before she was saying, Mordecai, there's no danger I'm going to the king. There's absolutely no chance. You're joking. Something has changed. Mordecai asked her, Esther, will you stand up and be called one of God's people? Esther starts believing in the gospel. Pray for me. She says, I need help. I will put my trust in God and go to the king. And do you know what? If I perish, I perish. Do you see some of those words? It's dripping with gospel content. It reminds you, does it, of, of Paul in Philippians 1.21? For to me, to live is Christ. Hey, I'll do this. I will live for him. But if I die, it is gain. And here's Esther. She recognises her weakness. Pray and fast for me. She recognises her vulnerability. If I perish, I perish. She's willing to go. I will go. And go and do what? She's saying, I will go and I will try and be the mediator between the king and God's people. That's what I will try and do. I'm under sentence. I'm under judgment. Death could come at any time. But that's what I'll go and do. I will be mediator. The person that brings both parties together, the king and God's people. God's people are about to be annihilated by the king's new law. I will stand in the middle and bring them together. Do you see what Esther foreshadows? 
Do you see every story whispers his name? Do you see wonderfully a weak man? No authority in the world's eyes. No armies to command. One who comes riding on a donkey, the lowliest of all the animals. Do you see a vulnerable man? They flogged him and they whipped him and they mocked him. Do you see a willing man? Yet not my will, but yours be done, Jesus prayed in the garden. A willing man who stands for all of God's people. A willing man who goes and a willing man who does perish. A willing man who perishes on behalf of God's people. The great hymn captures this, man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a saviour. And we leave chapter four on a knife edge. Will Esther do what she says? The Lord, has, the Lord Jesus has done what the prophets said he would do. Will Esther? And what will I do? What will you do? Trust in the Saviour who has given his life for you. Go and live for him in the place where God has called you for such a time as this. That's our prayer as a church, that we would do just that. For the Christian life is all about change. The change that takes place in Esther and the constant change that takes place as the Lord G- as God conforms us to make us more like the Lord Jesus every day. In the ups and the downs of life to go and be him in the place that he's called us and to trust him. And so let's sing of this wonderful truth together. We're going to sing the song, It Is Well, It Is Well With My Soul.